Hello and welcome everybody to this week's edition of the Salt City Hoops podcast. I again am Ben Dowsett, your host for this week while Andy Larson remains in Brazil doing a successful job cheering on the U.S. men's national team to the second round, well, the medal round of that tournament. We have a lot of things going on here too though. Those of you not living under rocks know that last night was the NBA draft and the Jazz made some very interesting moves. I am joined in studio by Clint Johnson. Clint, how are you? I'm uh, excellent. I'm excited and uh, a little stunned still. A little bit stunned. Yeah, that's uh, not a surprising view to have. Also on the line with us right now, joining us from New York, who was live at the draft last night, is Salt City Hoop Zone, Dan Clayton. Danny there? Hey, guys. How are you? How was last night? Uh, you know, it was, it was an exciting night for the Jazz, for sure. Uh, you know, as, as we uh, have talked about and, and covered in the Salt City Hoops piece at the drop this morning, uh, the Jazz got two guys at five and twenty-three who they had ranked higher than that. So, uh, so they were excited, and then obviously, you know, just the draft atmosphere is really cool. Um, and there were uh, there were a lot of really cool moments. Absolutely, and that that was kind of going to be where I started out. I knew you kind of just mentioned it there, but I, th- I think we wanted to sort of start with just your maybe a couple observations from you that the that the folks at home wouldn't be getting from their broadcast uh, maybe a couple of special things that you notice i hope i'm not putting you on the spot too much there but maybe just a couple of maybe insider notes from you i think the i think the folks are going to be interested in that sort of thing yeah um well so so the first thing that that strikes you is you watch a guy you know get the pick go up to the stage shake the commissioner's hand walk off stage to tv go back to do the other TV, then head into the interview room, the live shot room. At some point in there, they're calling their family, they're calling their new coach. Then they go, you know, for, for follow-up interviews, one-on-one interviews. It's, it's really like, a, like an assembly line, you know, a, a Henry Ford style, <laughs> you know, That's progressive great. assembly uh, with, with these guys being the, uh, you know, the Model T that's being slapped <laughs> together. So it's it's really interesting and, and probably a bit overwhelming for these guys, but obviously they uh, they deal with it really well. Which, given the emotion of the moment, I, I think is no small thing. And uh, you know, one of the things that I pointed out is that uh, particularly particularly Rodney Hood was really showing some emotion as he went through that whole process um, and was was a bit overwhelmed as he talked about his path from uh, you know small town Meridian, Mississippi, not far from where Al Jefferson grew up. Um, to to now, you know the NBA and the Utah Jazz. So those are those are some fun things to see. You know, it's it, these are obviously you know nineteen, twenty, twenty one year old guys. So just seeing them sort of process that emotion and go through what is what has got to be um, both an unforgettable day, but at the same time a, uh, a a day that that probably is like a blur to them. Hey Dan, this is uh, Clint. Hey Clint. Uh, great job on the coverage, by the way. Thanks. Um, whenever we watch the draft, you know, whether we're watching at home, we have our own individual reactions to picks and, you know, people who were at energy solutions would have had a, a a unique Utah reaction to each individual pick. I, I suspect that the reaction to Gordon going number four was probably pretty significant there. Um, but you being actually at the draft, uh, can you pinpoint one or two moments where the crowd really reacted to something where there was a major surprise either pleasantly or that confused people or just just what was the atmosphere and what were some decisions that really rippled through that crowd well first of all the crowd last night was very philly heavy there were tons and tons of sixer fans 
Um, a lot of reasons for that, obviously. One is that I don't think a bunch of Knicks and Nets fans came out, even though the draft was held, you know, in the five boroughs of New York City. Nothing to come right. out for. The, uh, the Nets didn't have a pick until they made some second-round moves, and the Knicks didn't pick also until the second round. Um, and then, you know, Philly's the next closest city, and the Sixers also had, like, seven picks. So uh, not sure how many of those they wound up keeping. I, I'm a little behind on sort of... They kept they kept 25 of them. Okay, 25 of them. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. And none of them uh, are going to play next year. So uh, so that's that's the first observation, is anything that had to do with uh, with Philadelphia, you know, a Philly trade, a Philly pick, any, anything like that got a pretty big reaction from the crowd. I'd say, though, that the, uh, you know, the, the thing that got the most universal um, hype, reaction, whatever the word is, was the Isaiah Austin stuff. And I don't know how many of our listeners know that whole story. Basically, Isaiah Austin was projected to be a first-round pick out of Baylor and found out literally days before the draft, I believe it was last Friday or Saturday, he found out that because of a diagnosis that he has Marfan syndrome, a disorder involving the connective tissues in his body, that he wouldn't be able to continue playing basketball at a high level. And so he wasn't going to have that dream moment of walking across the stage and shaking the commissioner's hand. So the commissioner actually surprised him and, uh, you know, invited him, first of all, to attend the draft in the green room and then surprised him by calling him up uh, with a sort of a special selection, a ceremonial. The NBA um, select. The NBA select yeah. Isaiah Austin. And when that happened, that kid got a standing ovation from everybody in Barclays Center. Um, and then as he went and did his own little media tour, um, you know, everywhere he went, um, and especially when he was interviewed over the loudspeakers, he was getting loudly cheered. His his name was getting chanted. It was a really neat moment for a guy who, you know, on the ninety nine uh, on the one yard line of making his dream, you know, saw that evaporate. But the NBA made sure that he still got his uh, his dream moment of walking across that stage. It was really cool, really classy moment there from the NBA, from Silver especially. And and the, you hear that they like that he's already received job offers, including from Silver, who potentially wants to bring him in next year after he's finished his. What, it's a business degree, right? I think. Yeah, um, yeah, he's studying business. Yeah, just a, just great stuff. Silver just continues to win in every way since he's become the commissioner, basically. Um, one, one more just sort of general general draft question from on location before we kind of get into some of the specifics with, with Exum and Rodney Hood and some, some more yeah. specifics. Um, there were several jazz people, obviously, in attendance at Barclays, yourself being one of them. Was the reaction fairly universally positive? Were there any – you don't have to name any names, of course, but were there any p- perhaps dissenters, maybe even uh, – and this is a subject we're going to potentially cross a little later. Was there anybody even suggesting a different pick once Exum fell to five? Uh, so, so I wasn't, I wasn't following the minute by minute, uh, proceedings with, mm-hmm. with all of those jazz media guys. Um, although I was sitting pretty close to a couple of them and, and, you know, the folks I was talking to, we were all kind of saying the same thing. If, if Exum is going to be there, you've got to take him, right? Yeah. Like he, he may not wind up being that franchise player, but he has a chance at that. So how can you how can you take a guy whose ceiling is, you know, potential all-star, fringe all-star, when you could get a guy who who um, who has been compared to some all-time greats, right? Um, at least in terms of his his style of play, his work ethic, his uh, his humility, et cetera, et cetera. So I think uh, I think for those of us who were there covering the Jazz, there was a pretty good sense that 
Axum falling to five was a pretty big coup for the Jazz. Um, at 23, you know, I, I, I think so. All of us are aware of what the statistical models say about Rodney Hood, but uh, again, I'll just repeat what everybody's talking about by now. The Jazz had that guy rated a lot higher than 23, and um, and even though they had options with that 23rd pick, including a trade down scenario with Miami, they, uh, y- you know, when a guy that you have rated as as one of the X best players in the draft falls to you at 23 the the jazz just felt like they had to they had to take him yeah i heard that he was about 15th on their board was that right uh yes that's what chad ford is reporting this morning um that's in the ballpark of what i heard i the the jazz were the jazz were really high on him and there was talk they might even move up to get him and the fact that they didn't have to do any of that you know you're right. You, of course, are right, Dan, and we are still going to see moves this summer. They're, the Jazz are not going to enter this season with nine extremely young players on their roster, but just the fact that they didn't have to give anybody up for, and then ended up getting the players that they may have wanted anyway, I think has obviously got to be a pretty big win. But So transitioning a little now, let's let's kind of get into some of the specifics here because I think this is, you know, the people are going to want to know this as well. Let's start with Exum because, of course, he's the, you know, he's the biggest draw from the draft. And you talked a little bit uh, just a second ago about sort of his some comparisons to, to to players in history and of course while i hate these we all know i hate these uh but clint and i were talking about this just a second before and one thing you know everybody fran fischilla made the comparison to an early michael jordan which of course is like the, the highest praise you can give a player and is obviously unrealistic dante exum is not going to be michael jordan well, uh, he took some heat for that too yeah which and is of course why i yeah. wanted to give him an opportunity in my piece to sort of justify that but go yeah ahead. no and i think what clinton and i were talking about is one area specifically that does at least sort of look similar just from a, a visual standpoint honestly is his shot and the shots gotten some criticism that's one of the areas that people identify as weaknesses and i don't I, you know you can't predict how this sort of a thing is going to go certain guys maybe just don't have touch and they may never get there but to my eye at least and tell me if you agree or disagree I really don't think that this is a broken shot or even anywhere close I think his form is honestly pretty good I think that the fact that he hasn't been a great jump shooter might relate way more to the fact that ever since this guy's been playing competitive basketball he's been able to get to the rim when literally whenever he wants against literally whoever he wants and has never had to really have a knockdown jumper as part of his game do you do you kind of agree oh yeah for sure so so I think there's two kinds of of good shooters in the NBA. There's stroke shooters and streak shooters. So a stroke shooter would be a guy like Kyle Korver, uh, Jeff Hornacek, even Gordon Gerichek, if we want to use another jazz example, Jason Capono, guys who every, Ray Allen is another one, guys who every time they shoot, they look exactly the same. Their release looks the same. Their release point looks the same. Follow through looks the same. They do everything the same. Then there's streak shooters like CJ Miles, who, you know, do different things with their shot based on where they're at on the floor, the the movement. Are they sh- are they shooting off the catch? Are they shooting going right to left or left to right? Um, you know, CJ kind of changed up his shot probably a little bit more than I liked and a little bit more than it, than is good for him. But uh, I think at this point in time, Dante, I, I would agree with you. I think he's got great mechanics, but he's a bit of a streak shooter, meaning you know he does he doesn't look at the basket the same way every time and he, and he doesn't have the same uh, same mechanics every time. I think that's something they'll work with him on and I 
don't have a hard time. Which, by the way, that's one place where, you know, the the young Jordan comp might, you know, because Jordan when he came into the league was the same. Yeah, he he had a he had a good shot, but he didn't have a consistent shot. He turned it into a consistent shot by you know refining that form. And and you're right, they were small tweaks, not big tweaks. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So I wanted to ask a, a question. This is going to be to both of you guys. I'll go to Clint first, and then I'll have uh, Dan. I'll have you answer the question as well. And I'm going to kind of make it a two parter because the, I guess these questions sort of a little bit relate to each other. Um, do we have any concern with Exum in the overall sense that you know, with all the hype and all the you know, this is the, this is a not nobody said sure thing, but this is a real shot at a franchise player. All of this. Do we have any concern that this might be a true draft bust? And to go along with that question, kind of just in terms of a, of a future sense, are we concerned at all uh, with the potential honesty level or anything uh, pertaining to his answer about the workouts and the fact that he didn't work out here because he didn't? They didn't think there was any chance he was going to drop this low. Do we? Do we think there's any bit of, of, of gamesmanship going on there? And do those two relate at all? I might be grasping at straws a little bit here, but I kind of wanted to get, get your guys' thoughts on, you know, we do have to temper our enthusiasm just a little bit and look at the, all the possibilities. So I wanted to see what you guys thought. We'll go to Clint first. Um, I'll address the first question and then hand it to Dan, and maybe we can go back on the, the honesty thing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> As to do I think that it, there's a chance he can be a bust, uh, I have to say yes because he's a human Rorschach test. I mean, <clears throat> based on the incredible um, low amount of information that anyone has on him, not just us, not just fans, but um, front office personnel, uh, even the scouts who have seen him have not seen him very much, <clears throat> um, that you can read almost anything that you want into him. Um, I don't believe that he will be a bust. But based on the little information that I have and based on um, the competition level that he's faced, which, let's be honest, I mean, most of the play that he's done is probably mid-tier American high school level play. Just about. Yeah. Um, it's almost impossible to have any degree of confidence in uh, projecting him, certainly in the near term. And you see this reflected in the uh, assessments and appraisals of professional scouts. Um on Draft Con- Confidential that Ryan Rosillo did on Grantland, uh, he speaks to a, a couple NBA uh, professional scouts and one uh, anonymous GM. And one of these guys said, uh, when they were talking about Exum, he said, you can look like a hero get, or get fired for taking this kid. That's who he is. Another said, I have no comparisons for him. None. <laughs> which is Which is a compliment to be sure, but also a, a bit of a, you know, holy cow! Right, they're out on a limb here, right? Right, and and so I, um, Ben asked me if I'm excited, and I said I, I think so. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know yet. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I am excited, but the truth is that I don't feel that I or honestly anyone knows enough about him to feel confident about any way that we feel. I mean, what's your take, Dan? Yeah, so uh, so definitely, um, it's easy after the pick to focus on on the upside, right, on the possibilities. But, uh, you know, one thing I was saying about Exum all throughout this pre-draft process, and I, and I think it was true until Embiid got hurt, because now Embiid, I think, represents a, <laughs> the, the only player with a higher best-case scenario and mm-hmm. at the same time lower, be- lower worst-case scenario. 
I think Exum might be the guy in this draft um, who has the biggest gap between best and worst case scenario. Um, so, you know, that's, that's certainly something to be conscious of. At the same time, I, I do think the Jazz um, and a lot of NBA teams, I, I, I think there are people who know him better than, <laughs> than others and certainly than us. Um, and and uh, Rich Sherbrooks, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but he's a, he's a jazz scout, and, and he's the guy who who has put together a lot of the a lot of those uh, you know international exhibitions where uh, where Dante Exum has become a household name. So you know they've they've seen him. And the other thing I would say about about Exum that um, doesn't remove all the risk for sure. But encourages you about his likelihood of, of reaching the best case scenario is that uh, he does genuine, genuinely appear to be um, humble, unassuming. He's confident in, in his abilities, but uh, I don't think he's going to be a guy who is going to be too big to put in the work to get better. So, uh, you know, that, uh, and, and by the way, that's part of what Fran Fraschilla told me when I approached Fran after the draft to, uh, to have him. Explain to me his uh, his MJ comp. I, I want to follow up on that Rich Shoebrooks comment because I think that's really important. And I, d- I don't think a lot of jazz fans know this. Uh, Shoebrooks is um, one of the driving forces behind the Nike Hoop Summit. I mean, yeah. he's been involved in that for 17 years now. He is the, the guy who maybe more than anyone else is responsible for putting together these international teams that go up against the best um, young American players. He is also an international scout for the jazz. And uh, he watched Exum play uh, for Australia in the Under-17 World Championships in Lithuania. And uh, in a chance encounter in, um, in an airport, he ran into Exum after the championship game really early in the morning. And he invited him to the next year's Hoop Summit a year in advance. He extended the earliest invitation that has ever been given to the Hoop Summit to Dante Exum. I didn't know that. And uh, so from everything that I've seen, I think that he has probably seen about as much of Exum's play as, as anyone that we know, and he is an international scout for the Utah Jazz. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and, I mean, you know, Exum didn't come here for a workout, but the, the Jazz had talked to him. They interviewed him. Um, I'm sure they've seen both tape and a bunch of in-person opportunities to see Exum play. Um, you know, in a five on in a five on five context, in trainings and workouts at the Nike Hoop, Hoop Summit. So, I mean, like, let's not overstate this. He, you're you're right. He's still a bit of a mystery, and and he's still a guy who could be really really good or really really mediocre. But uh, but I do think that if if anyone's in a position to speak authoritatively about the likelihood of him of him, you know, reaching full potential. I think uh, I think the Jazz have some of those some of those eyeballs that have been on Exum a lot. Are you are you concerned at all, Dan? With the the other question that I asked in terms of the, his comment about the workouts, are you concerned? There's any bit of of, of gamesmanship going on there at all? Uh, yeah, help me understand your question. Cause oh, are, are it's you just suggesting that maybe the Jazz, you know, took a surreptitious look at him. No, no, I'm I'm potentially suggest. You know, there's always the thought with with these players, and especially with the, the the brief comment that there was from Exum, which I think was taken out of context about how he wouldn't mind playing for the Lakers. That whole thing, and and you know, Utah not potentially being the most desirable destination among NBA teams as to 
you know, and his comment afterwards about the fact that he, you know, that why didn't you work out for the Jazz and his comment about saying, well, it's because we didn't think there was any chance that I was going to drop that far. Is there any chance that that wasn't the reason? And in fact, the reason was that they kind of didn't want to come to Utah and that there might potentially down the line be an issue with that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people who would like to play in L.A. I'm sure there are a lot of people who would like to play in Miami and New York. Um, There are 13 to 15 roster spots per team, so not everybody gets to have their way. Um, So one thing I will say is that I listened to his interview from Wednesday's media availability. I didn't go to that event, but I I heard the interview where he said that the reason... The reason they didn't go to Utah was because uh, Utah just selected Trey Burke last year. And then Thursday night, he said the reason was, well, we didn't think I was going to be available at five. So I guess that's the only flag for me that says if he's inconsistent on what should be a pretty simple Q&A, um, you know, maybe there is a little bit more behind it. But, but I, you know, I also will tell you that he seemed genuinely excited about Utah. He uh he talked to Quinn Snyder, and he mentioned specifically that Quinn talked to him about um, how he planned to use him from a system perspective and the fact that Quinn, being a former point guard himself, he could help uh, you know Exum and Trey Burke uh, really grow within the framework of the Jazz system. So, you know, while that might have been true going into the draft that, that maybe he preferred a, a quote-unquote sexier destination, uh, I think he's legitimately happy about Utah. The other thing about you know destinations and markets is that Exum is uh, pretty pretty deep into the endorsement game already. Yeah. He has a he has a lot of relationships with uh, a lot of advertising relationships, and I'm sure that that's a little bit of a harder sell, uh, you know, in Salt Lake City versus in L.A. or New York or Chicago, et cetera. But at the same time, uh, you know. Kevin Durant's not having a hard time signing any endorsement yeah. deals playing in Oklahoma City. So I think if you're a great player and you reach your full potential, you know, Foot Locker will still come calling and and Adidas will still come calling and, uh, you know, Red Bull will still come calling, which, by the way, I find that a pretty funny partnership. Given <laughs> I think it's awesome. <laughs> I think he has, a, he has a little bit of, like, like pseudo-Blake Griffin personality status in him where he could, with the accent... And everything else to where he could really become like that second commercial that that you listed in your article today, Dan. The the one with the with him spelling his name with the X. I laughed audibly at that commercial. Like that was a good commercial. Um, now, but anyway, you you mentioned uh, in your comment right there. You mentioned a little bit about systems, and I did want to do just a, a minute or two on this uh, before we move on to to hood and to maybe sort of some more overall jazz stuff before we finish up. Um, I just I just think the systematic fit for the Jazz, assuming a, a, a standard level of development for Exum, is going to be absolutely incredible. I think that him playing with Alec Burks, even right away, is going to be very successful. And of course, we all know my irrationality in terms of Alec Burks overall. But I think the two complement each other basically perfectly, especially if Burks continues to trend upwards towards this the forty percent mark from three, which he's been you know kind of getting closer to and seemed to improve at the end of last year. I think defensively, Exum is going to have some problems. Of course, he's there. Are, those have been his most noted issues from the people who have watched him. In particular, the fact—I mean, Nate Duncan on Basketball Insiders noted how he—he he literally is walking for like a decent portion of the time on defense. I happen to think a lot of that relates back to basically playing against high schoolers for most of his life, or only, yeah. only playing against high schoolers for most of his life. 
But I first of all, e- even if he struggles majorly, which I think off the ball defensively he will, he'll he'll struggle right away. Those just don't won't be things he's used to. You can put Burks on the stronger guard in all circumstances, and that immediately hides Exum's most glaring weakness right away. And then you have someone like a Hayward on the floor at the same time to guard a three. And, or to even guard a two, and you can hide Exum on if there's if the other team's playing, a, you know, a Tony Allen at the three, you can just throw Exum on him, knowing that it's not a large concern. I think that fit is excellent, and offensively, of course, I think he fits right into the type of system that Quinn Snyder's going to go with. And just just my last point here before I, I see what your guys' thoughts are a bit on that, people tend to group things to group prospects together. It's a natural tendency, of course. And we tend to group types of guys, and Exum is, of course, the type of guy, you know, breathtaking speed, can get to the rim and finish, but, you know, maybe lacking in the jump shot, maybe lacking defensively, things like that. We tend to group all those guys as similarly valued. And I think the thing that people are potentially underrating with Exum is is how much faster he is than even most all of those guys, in particular his crossover and his first step, in particular for his size which uh, may grow. He's grown two inches since last year, and he may grow two more. He, the guy's 18 years old. And uh, that's the thing to me that when, when we're thinking about a motion system that we want to start instituting, where more speed, more pace, I think there really couldn't have been a better selection. What do you, what do you guys think? Yeah, that was, a, that was a multi-part question. I know, so sorry. I, I'll try to figure out where to jump in first here, and then Clint, be interested to hear your thoughts too. Sure. Um, so I totally agree with you about the uh, about the the dangerous nature of comps and and grouping players together by strengths and weaknesses because there is a tendency to say, oh, you know, lightning quick guard with a inconsistent jump shot. He's Ty Lawson. Why did we get yeah. Ty Lawson? You know what I mean? Without keeping in mind that while the high level bullet points might match, you know, they're Dante Exum is a lot better overall prospect so and so eight inches sure taller there. yeah um i i talked to dante a little bit about the system and and the conversations he had with quinn about about system fit specifically i asked him about you know snyder having said that he intends to run something with a spaced floor um an up-tempo game and a lot of pick and roll and ball movement and dante basically said to me that's that's how we played in australia um he mentioned proactively without me asking he mentioned that a lot of the teams that he has played on have uh, have basically played with two ball handlers um so i think that should make both trey burke and alec burks feel a little bit better about uh about not necessarily being automatic trade bait now um and then and then he just talked about how prevalent the pick and roll is in australian basketball and international basketball overall and how he's really comfortable with it and it's basically you know the the staple of of the teams he's played on just like it's a staple in the nba so i don't think he'll have a hard uh, a hard time with the learning curve uh quinn at the same time is really studious about all the different iterations and variations on the pick and roll and i'm sure that's something that exum and the other jasmine will be exploring in the next few months leading up to camp but i think you're right i, I think they i think they got a guy that fits what uh what quinn wants to do i agree with that i i think that uh, schematically, he'll he'll fit great. Um, one thing that I do think is that, <clears throat> I mean, p- point guard, off guard. I think those terms are increasingly losing more and more of their meaning. But uh, one thing that is very clear to me is I think that um, for Exum to to become 
um, the type of player that uh, we all think that he can be. I think he has to be a ball handling playmaker. Whether you play him at the one or at the two, I think that the ball needs to be in his hands a lot. Yeah. With with that being the case, um, I do think there's the potential here for uh, some some problems with Trey Burke. I think Trey Burke has the skill set to to play off the ball, but I don't know if he has the mentality or the willingness to do that. Uh, so that that's one area that I'm going to look at uh, very carefully to see how that evolves because uh, I think that Exum has the possibility of being an, an off guard. I think a lot of people are projecting that. I actually think that's uh, his most likely trajectory unless he's really uh, trained up and, and, and developed uh, as a point guard. Uh, or at least as a ball-dominant guard. But I think that to reach his potential, you have to have the ball in his hands a lot. And I do think that that has some potential to to create some problems with Trey Burke on the team. What are your thoughts there? Well, so I agree with you on on Burke. I think some of his strengths and weaknesses actually make him better suited to... um, In fact, we've talked over the course of the last 12 months about a bunch of different possibilities that would be good for Utah at the two because they could be, you know, big guards who could defend NBA twos, but at the same time on offense allow Trey to sort of play off screens or play as a spot shooter. Um, Trey's a shooter, you know. He's a that's what he did at uh, at Michigan, and and I definitely think that if that that could be something that the Jazz are looking to do. I, I um I I agree with you about about his handles and how he's how Exum is a better player when he has the ball in his hand um which you know depending on depending on how much we're expecting the Jazz to be pick and roll based versus a crazy hot potato passing team like San Antonio was in the finals um you know obviously that could have an impact there uh but but again I think in broad terms we all know um certainly from an, an analyst perspective, we all don't know that much about Exum to say, you know, he's going to flourish in this setting and not flourish in this type of system. Um, obviously, the Jazz, the Jazz took him because he was the best player available, but also because they think he fits what uh, they're trying to build philosophically. Um, and and it, sounds like, it sounds like he's comfortable either way, honestly. And the one thing he did mention specifically is uh, he love, this guy loves to lead the break. So the Jazz had a hard time getting Trey Burke to put the pedal to the metal last year. Uh, Ty, Carbon, Ty Corbin consistently hounded him about trying to go faster off the uh, off the defensive rebound or off the off the steal on the defensive end and get them into the tra- into transition. I don't think anybody will have to tell Dante Exum mm-hmm. to hurry up. He mentioned several times that that he loves playing that fast pace. Yeah, and he's going to be such a weapon there even right away, given just the the breakneck speed and the way that he can handle the ball for his size. Now, we talk a little bit about there's going to potentially be a lot of two-guard stuff going on and potentially two-point guard stuff if you consider Exum you know, something close to a, a, point, a pure point guard, which, of course, he, he really isn't, but if he gets there. Um, and I, to me, I think we talk about the direction the Jazz are trying to head in, and we talk about the, the the comparison that's made constantly, of course, is them becoming a newer version of the Spurs, a Spurs 2.0 with all the Spurs influences that they have in, in their coaching staff and their front office and everything like that. And I that that's, again, part, another part of the reason why I'm so excited 
is I think that this both this selection and the selection of Hood, who we're going to get to here in just a second before we finish up, um, I, I think that it's most the, the flexibility that those two guys, if you know, assuming they they develop at reasonable trajectories, and of course there's there's probably going to be some movement. We may see a guy or two of this current you know five man guard rotation that we're or five man wing slash guard rotation that we're looking at right now. Maybe not all of them are in reality going to be there long term, but just working with what we have now, you see a system where th- there can be so much interchangeability, and we and we talk about all the the different triumphs that the Spurs had this year when they won. Uh, you know the the whole team concept over individual skill, the whole elite coaching, the, and 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 systems and that whole thing, and and of course all that's there. But the, I think the part that gets a little bit underrated sometimes is is ha- and and sure Popovich killed Bolster in that series. He he was be- much better from a coaching standpoint. But some of that really goes back to just having so much more flexibility in terms of the matchups and the roster options that he can use. And I think going to be that type of a team, the type of team that everybody talks about with the Spurs, where you can just you can plug in any guys and they're all able to do the same things, I think the Jazz are totally laying the framework here for there's all sorts of different situations. So, oh, you know, Exum is a little bit potentially weak against against point guards. Cool, we can play Alec Burks against them. Oh, you know, Rodney Hood isn't maybe the defender that we want him to be yet, but we need some shooting on the floor. Okay, just make sure Hayward's out there and Hayward can guard the best wing the best wing player. All these little caveats that the Jazz now have plenty of options at, that's the thing I'm most excited about. But we have just a few minutes left, uh, and while we do, I think we want to transition just a little bit into Rodney Hood. Uh, Right away, an immediate reaction from both of you. I'll go to Clint first and then to Dan. Value pick that fits a need. I mean, one of the... One of the things that uh, was pretty consistent leading up to the draft is that uh, the Jazz were uh, prized shooting. You know, they know that they need it. They know that the league is uh, increasingly valuing the be- the ability to space the floor. Um, and so I think it was a confluence of really great value uh, of a specialty skill that they were looking for. So it, when he fell that far, I think it was kind of a no-brainer, to be honest. What about you, Dan? Yeah, I, I actually—I'll I, be honest—I hadn't—I hadn't looked very closely at Hood. He seemed like a guy who definitely wasn't in the mix at the Jazz's first pick, and probably wouldn't make it to the second pick. <laughs> His range started as high as 13. In Ford's latest mock, he was going number 18. So he was a guy I hadn't looked too closely at. Uh, so I, I had to play a little bit of catch up on on his style of play and what he does. Although I will say this. You know, every, every time I watch Duke, which I watched Duke a little bit this year, because obviously the, the Jazz thought they might be in the mix for Parker. So whenever I had a chance, I'd, I'd turn on a Duke game. Uh, this guy is a guy that defenses are always keeping track of. He's a threat from the mid-range. He's a threat from the perimeter. And uh, and teams know that. So I, I think a guy like that is really valuable to have. Um, in your second unit as you think about ways to, to keep the defense honest and space the floor. Uh, and again, I'd, I'd agree with what Clint just said. The, the Jazz, again, the Jazz thought this guy was one of the best. I don't know the number, right? But the Jazz, you know, Chad Ford is saying 15. Sure, let's, let's use that as a, mm-hmm. as a descriptor here. The Jazz thought he was one of the 15 best players in this draft, and they could, and they could get him at 23. Uh, you know, obviously... Clint Capella was still on the board. I'm a I like Clint Capella. Sad uh, face from me. Kyle Anderson was on the board. I'm not as high on Kyle Anderson, although the Spurs picked him, so maybe I need to rethink that. 2018 <laughs> Finals MVP Kyle Anderson, <laughs> and uh, and then you know other guys too. KJ McDaniel's is a guy I was high. so the Jazz had options, um, 
and uh, and I, I don't think I would have been disappointed no matter which way the jazz went. But hearing that that these that these jazz brass who who know their stuff had him rated that high and were able to get him at 23 and not have to give anything up to go get him in the teens, um, you know, I I think he'll play a role. And positionally, then it starts. You know, then we have to continue the conversation about what do the Jazz do now. But uh, yeah. but again, he's a guy who can probably play either wing spot and give the Jazz a lot of versatility to, you know, play big, play small, go with a lineup full of shooters, go with a lineup full of defenders. I I, I liked your point a minute ago, Ben, about just the uh, the flexibility that the Jazz have now. Because it seems like at every spot you can do multiple things in terms of the type of lineup you can construct. Um, although again, you know that's that's all contingent on how much of a role Rodney Hood will have as a rookie. I think we'll see him play. I think he'll be in the rotation. Uh, but I also, you know, he's he's not going to get 30 minutes, right? No, no way. And there are some, you know, there are definitely some concerns. His wingspan is a little bit worrying in terms of, and that's why I think that's a big reason why the and the results of it are a big reason why a couple of the analytical models don't like him so much he's not ever going to be a high steel guy he's not really ever going to be crushing passing lanes with his length or anything like that but i do think he has real promise as a normal stay in front average defender perhaps not ever an elite one but i don't think he's going to be that type of guy who's a glaring weakness and you know again like i said you're not going to have to match him up with the lebrons of the world we've got other guys that are going to be better suited for that and yeah. the the one thing that I that I just really like with him generally it, that's going to fit perfectly with the system is his offensive feel. And you talk about watching him at Duke a lot. He the guy really knows the game. He understands the game. He's ex- he's excellent off the ball. He moves he's like a Ray Allen. Well, not quite Ray Allen, but he you know he moves all he moves a lot around. He can use his screens really well. He's good at initiating that sort of thing. And he has an incredibly high release on his shot. Is another thing that I think is is slightly underrated. He's shooting over everybody. He's, he's going to yeah. be able to shoot over closeouts, and he gets it off quickly, like a kind of a Durant style, how quick he gets it off. And it's accurate, and it's left-handed, which is always fun. And for Jazz fans who didn't watch Duke this year, I mean, all the scouts who went to Duke were looking at Jabari Parker. And one thing that you heard very frequently, and I felt the same way when I watched them play, is that you were there to watch Jabari Parker, but you saw Rodney Hood. You noticed Rodney Hood, even though you weren't there to look for at him and so i think that's a good sign going forward definitely there's there's so oh sorry go ahead dan last thought here 15 seconds then we got to get going unfortunately yeah so the only thing i was going to say is another reason why the analytical models don't like him um rebound rate and steal rate are two pretty important metrics in terms of predicting value and, and predicting how someone transitions to the league i'd be interested to know how much of his low rebound and steal rate had to do with uh with coach k and and the personnel around him i'm i'm not an expert in duke so That'll be probably my next research project in terms yeah. of figuring well, and out they went explain away those those two items. Yeah, and they went super small a lot as well with Jabari at the center. That could be a reason. But we have run out of time today. Thank you so much, Dan. Excellent coverage of the draft last night. For those of you who have not seen, Dan has a recap piece up on the draft on saltcityhoops.com right now. It is an excellent piece. You guys got to check it out. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dan, and thank you to Clint Johnson for joining me in studio. I am Ben Dowsett signing off.